those who belong to God will believe in Jesus, his son. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus reveal that they don't belong to God. Jesus' supernatural miracles inescapably demonstrate that he is God in human flesh. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 10. John 10, we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 22. John 10, 22 to the end of the chapter. As you know, we've been in John for probably since November, and I think we'll be here for the end of the year. We'll see how it goes. One of Shakespeare's most famous plays is Hamlet. And probably one of the most famous lines from that play is when Hamlet is contemplating suicide, and he asks himself the soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. Now, the eternal question that we are asking is not to be or not to be. It's to believe or not to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord because your eternal state of being depends on having the right answer to that question. Believe is the central theme of the Gospel of John. John uses that word 98 times uh, in his Gospel. Believing in Jesus results in eternal life, so it has eternal consequences, Refusing to believe in Jesus Christ results in eternal judgment. And John highlights this throughout the book, John 3.16, which you all know, ends with the phrase, whoever believes in him, what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Two verses later in verse 18, John 3, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. A few chapters later, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he says, quote, unless you believe that I am he, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, the sent one from God, you will die in your sins. You will die unforgiven, unrepentant, and experience eternal separation from God. Now, the end, near the end of the book, in John 20, he tells the reader why he wrote the gospel. John 20, chapter Chapter 20, verse 30, Therefore, many other signs, miracles, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So John's goal is twofold. One is polemic, it's to demonstrate, empirically demonstrate the deity of Christ, which he does through seven signs, and then to persuade his readers, having demonstrated the deity of Jesus Christ, persuade them to place their faith to believe in Christ Jesus as Savior so they can experience eternal life. So that's the purpose. Let's go down to the narrative now in verse 22, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, verse 23. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the events of John chapter 7, 8, 9, and the first half of chapter 10, those three and a half chapters, take place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurred in September, October of each year. The last chapter of chapter 10, where we are today, beginning in verse 22, takes place during the Feast of the Dedication. Different feast. It occurs largely in December. So there's about three-month difference between the first half of chapter 10 and the second half of chapter 10. This is a significant section of Scripture because it is the last record of Jesus' public ministry where he offers salvation to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation. He's been ministering now, remember, about three years in Jerusalem. It's December His date with the cross is in March, April of the following year. He's within 90 days of his crucifixion. He's been performing miracles, teaching, healing, demonstrating power over demons, over nature, over over evil, and he's been rejected by the Jewish leaders almost from the beginning. 
and he's now being rejected by the nation at large. So his ministry, after three years, is largely one of human rejection. Now, the Feast of the Dedication, this is a Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, which is also called the Feast of Lights. It is a celebration that's celebrated today. It's not an, uh, an Old Testament mosaic uh, feast that's designated. It's a celebration of the Israelite victory over the Syrian leader Antiochus IV. He was a Syrian king, and he, his, he named himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest, or the glorious illustrious one. He didn't have any problem with pride, right? Called himself God, right? Clearly, he thought he was a god. Actually, he was so notoriously evil, a wicked man, that his nickname, the crowds called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman, the nutcase. And when you look at his behavior, it was evil. He was a devotee of Greek culture. He took the throne in Syria, and he, com he was committed to impose Greek culture on all his subjugated people, including the people of Israel, by force. And to do that, he had to stamp out Judaism in Israel. In 170, Antiochus invaded and conquered Jerusalem. He desecrated the Jewish temple. He set up a pagan altar to Zeus, that was the chief of the Greek gods, inside the temple and commanded that only sacrifices to Zeus were allowed. He also sacrificed a pig on the altar inside Jerusalem and spread pig offal throughout the walls of the temple, desecrating it. He forbade circumcision on penalty of death. He forbade Sabbath keeping. He confiscated all copies of the Mosaic Law. He murdered large numbers of Jews, including women and children, and he took large numbers of them as slaves. So he was your worst nightmare uh, as a dictator. As a matter of fact, Revelation refers to this man as the abomination of desolation, which is a type of the Antichrist. So Antiochus is a forerunner, if you will, a prototype of the man of sin, the Antichrist. That's how evil he was. So the Jews obviously, after a while, rebelled against Antiochus, and the rebellion was led by an old priest named Mattathias. And he had five sons, the most famous of which was named Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. And he led Israel in a guerrilla warfare against these Syrian invaders. And on 25 Chislev, that's the name of their month, Chislev, which is our December, Christmas Day, literally, December 25th, 164 BC, the Jewish guerrilla forces liberated Jerusalem and the temple, cleansed it from idols, and rededicated it to God. So the Jews celebrated that by lighting candles and lamps to commemorate this deliverance from uh, this evil man. And the Feast of the Dedication, or the Feast of uh, Lights, uh, John calls it the Feast of the Dedication, lasted eight days. So it was an eight-day celebration uh, from their freedom uh, from Antiochus and freedom to worship God according to Mosaic Law. Now this feast obviously is celebrated uh, to this day. Now the Jewish army first freed the temple, but then they led Israel in a battle for control of the land. That took about 20 years. Uh, in 63 BC, 100 years later, though, the Roman general Pompey invaded, took control of Palestine, and ever since then, Israel had been occupied by Roman soldiers. So when Jesus comes on the scene, they are a vassal state, an occupied territory. I mean, imagine if everywhere you went, you saw foreign occupying soldiers in your country. That's how the Jews had been living for well over a century. But they did have freedom for about 100 years, from about 164 to 63. And then since then, the last 60-some years, they've been under the thumb of Rome. So that gives you the historical context of when this occurs. John furthermore notes that it was winter. Obviously, it's December. And it was cold, so Jesus walked on the eastern side of the temple on the covered colonnade called Solomon's Porch. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel in 586 B.C., he destroyed the temple. But he left the eastern retaining wall. There's a huge retaining wall on the east side of the temple that had remained standing. And 
The Jews built onto that retaining walls. They added a number of columns. A colonnade is simply columns. These are very large columns, about 40 foot tall. And they built a shelter, a roof over these colonnades. So you could walk underneath uh, this uh, colonnade next to this large retaining wall and stay out of the weather. So it was winter, and so they decided to stay out of the weather. This was also the place where a great deal of Jewish rabbis had their teaching uh, places. They literally, their students would come on the eastern portico, Solomon's portico. It wasn't only winter physically cold, it was winter spiritually. The Son of God had come to his own people. And John said in John 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So they were, nation, they were cold toward Christ. The leaders and most of the people at this point in time had rejected their Messiah. So Jesus is walking in this eastern uh, colonnade, and he is accosted by the Jews, verse 24. When they say the Jews, we're talking about Jewish religious leaders. We're not talking about the nation, we're talking about the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, quote, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Here's the principle. Those who belong to God will believe in Jesus, his son. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus reveal that they don't belong to God. Those who belong to God will believe in Jesus as a son. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus reveal they don't belong to God. So the Jews, the leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, surround Jesus. They hem him in. They crowd him in so he can't go anywhere and move away. And they pin him down to ask him a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? Or, or how long will you keep us in doubt? Well, there's a substantial difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt looks for answers. I don't know if anybody here can say, I have never doubted my faith. I have doubted my faith. There's a lot of things I have doubted. But doubt looks for answers. Unbelief looks for excuses. Remember the Samaritan woman who Jesus met at the village of Sychar? She had some doubts. Remember the man born blind? He had doubts. But they were looking for answers. They were looking for reasons to believe. When Jesus identified himself as the Messiah, the Samaritan woman and the man born blind said, I believe they were looking for reasons to believe, and they worshipped Jesus as God in human flesh. There's nothing wrong with doubting, as long as you do the homework regarding the doubting. I tell everyone, there's nothing wrong with doubting, but do your homework. Research your doubts. Look at the evidence so that you can obtain answers that pass the logic obvious test. God's word is filled with answers and filled with evidence. Do your homework and deal with the doubts on the basis of God's word. Now, in the case of the Pharisees, they refused to believe, not for lack of evidence. They refused to believe despite the evidence. They demanded that Jesus tell us plainly whether you're the Messiah. Well, that's disingenuous. For more than two and a half years, Jesus has been telling them over and over and over and over again who he is. John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 6.51, Jesus said, I am what? The living bread that came down out of heaven. John 7, 29, I know him, I know God, because I am from God, and God sent me. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. Does this sound pretty clear? That he's making it exceptionally clear to the nation who he is and where he came from and what his relationship to God is. This last phrase is interesting. Remember that I am is the covenantal name of God. It's the tetragrammaton. Yahweh is the name that God commanded Israel to call him, and Jesus is using the name of God to describe himself. Clearly, he is claiming to be deity, and the Jews knew it, and we know that they knew it because they tried to assassinate him on the spot by picking up thrones and stone, right? So in this scene, the Jews are not actually looking for information. They already have the data. 
They're looking to try and trap Jesus into publicly declaring that he's the Messiah so they can execute him on the spot. They're looking for reasons to assassinate him. And of course, Jesus responds with a great deal of obviously infinite wisdom. And he says, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. In other words, if you want evidence that my words, my claims are true, look at my supernatural miracles. Over the past three years, God had empowered Jesus to perform hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of supernatural miracles. I mean, at this point in time, he's already raised two people from the dead. He's restored the sight of, of, of uh, four different people already. There have been hundreds of miracles. By the way, one of the most fascinating ways that you can document these miracles took place is because the people that hated him never denied them. There's not one record that the Pharisees ever denied that all these miracles had taken place. They were obviously performed. There were hundreds of them, and there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of transformed lives. People were still alive saying, yeah, he opened my eyes. He made me walk. He raised my son from the dead. He exercised the demon from my daughter. I mean, they were all eyewitnesses. So the Pharisees, who had the most reason to deny the miracles, never, ever denied him. They acknowledged them. They had a problem, though. Supernatural works demand supernatural power. One of their own number, Pharisee named Nicodemus, came to him in, in chapter 3, and he says, no one can do the works you do unless God is with him. Clearly, if you're going to do supernatural works, you have to have supernatural power. But instead of concluding that Jesus came from God, the Pharisees perversely conclude that his power to do miracles came from Satan. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now this is perverse thinking of the worst kind. They claim that the source of Jesus' power to perform loving, compassionate miracles to benefit people was Satan himself. In other words, the Son of God is filled and controlled by Satan himself. This is a settled, rebellious rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, despite hundreds and hundreds of miracles testifying to the fact that he was the Messiah. And this settled rejection of Jesus is the one unforgivable sin that guarantees hell. By the way, there's no other way to heaven except through Jesus, right? Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way, the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you reject Jesus as the way to the Father, there is no other way to heaven. That is a choice that will land you separated from God eternally in hell. Now, one of the Jews' problems, especially the scribes and Pharisees, is that Jesus did not match their expectations of what Messiah should look like. The Feast of the Dedication was not only a, a celebration of their freedom to worship God, it was a very patriotic time, very patriotic time in Israel. It reminded them of the freedom they had before Rome invaded them. So it was a legitimate celebration, nationalistic as well as religious. And the, the Jewish religious leaders and many of the people, they wanted the Messiah like Judas Maccabeus. They wanted someone who would lead an army, throw off Roman rule, and restore their freedom their nationalist freedom that they had prior uh, to Roman invasion. They wanted the Messiah like Moses, we found out out a few chapters ago, who would provide them with free food. Remember, he fed the 5,000 and they said, Lord, feed us with this bread all the time. You know, keep producing this free food and create, of course, the ultimate welfare state. And Jesus did not match their expectations. He didn't come as a political warrior king the first time. He came as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says very clearly he's going to be despised and rejected of men. He's going to be innocent and he's going to suffer for the sins of the many. And they knew the Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish religious leaders had practically most of it memorized, but because he didn't yet match their expectations of a, of a political king, they rejected him. Jesus says, 
You don't believe because you don't belong to me. You are not of my sheep. You don't belong to my flock. Earlier in John 8, Jesus confronted them, the scribes and Pharisees, in John 8, 43, and he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. He doesn't say it is because you will not hear my word. He says you cannot hear my word. Why? You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is an exceptionally important truth for you and I to remember when we witness to family, friends, co-workers about the reality of Jesus Christ, and their hearing aid just doesn't turn on, and they don't seem to get it, and they don't want to hear it. Why not? Well, ever since Cain and Seth, remember, Cain was a son of Adam and Eve, Seth was the number three son of Adam and Eve. These two lines, the son of Adam, the human race has been divided into two camps. Those who follow God, the line of Seth, and those who follow Satan, the line of Cain. And that's been ever since, virtually, uh, since the fall, after, right, shortly thereafter. Sheep only follow the voice of their own shepherd. We talked about that last week. Sheep will not follow the voice of strangers. Those who belong to Satan's family possess his nature. They possess his spiritual DNA. And they follow him in hating God and rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot act in opposition to your nature. How many of you, before the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart, were obviously under the authority of the enemy? We all were. We were born in sin. The Jews did not hear, understand, or believe in Jesus because they didn't belong to his flock. They belonged to Satan's horde, and they acted like it. Jesus confronted them multiple times for their hypocrisy and pronounced God's judgment on their arrogant self-righteousness. Jesus was not their shepherd. Satan was their sovereign. Satan was their father, and they wanted to do the deeds of their father because that's the spiritual DNA they possessed. So it begs the question, so how do you become part of Jesus' flock? I mean, if you can't follow him, if you're part of Satan's horde, how do you become part of Jesus' flock? Warren Wiersbe says, from the human standpoint, we become his sheep by believing but from the divine standpoint, we believe because we are his sheep. The human perspective is, you do not believe, therefore you are not of my sheep. God's perspective is, you are not of my sheep, therefore you do not believe. Now that's not a paradox. It's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and situation. Scripture clearly teaches that God is sovereign over salvation. Scripture equally teaches that humans are absolutely morally responsible for their decisions, to follow or not follow. So from God's point of view, the Jewish religious leaders did not believe in Jesus because they belonged to their father Satan, not to God, but they were still accountable before God for the decisions they made not to believe. And that is the truth for all of us. God is sovereign, we are responsible. And you look at that and you go, I don't understand. That's correct. We are not that smart. We have a three-pound brain before dementia, then it goes down, right? And the reality is, it cannot be understood by finite human beings, but I want you to know, divine sovereignty and human responsibility makes perfect sense to God. And the judge of all the earth will always do exactly what is right. Belief. Let's talk about that. Belief is like resting your entire weight on something you believe will hold you. Every one of you in this room right now are exercising faith, a great deal of faith. You believe the chair that you're sitting in is going to hold you up. You no idea why, but you do believe it. You obviously have your entire weight resting on this chair. Most of you got here by an automobile, and when you pushed the button or turned the key, you really believed that car was going to start, 
and that you really believed you would get here, and when you pushed the brakes, they would actually stop. Somebody, when they walked into this building, flipped the switch and believed that the lights would go on, even though they probably didn't think about how electricity works. So belief is not simply intellectual assent. It's not emotional reaction. Belief is a commitment of the will. It's a choice. It's a decision to trust in something enough to act on it. You know, you can say that you believe airplanes can fly, but we'll know you really believe it when you book a ticket, get on one, and fly away, right? Then we know you believe that airplanes can fly. You can believe that the medicine that your physician prescribes you will actually help the ailment you have. We'll know you really believe it when you take the medicine. But most of us in this room don't even finish the prescriptions we've been given. When we start feeling better, what do we do? Stop taking it, of course, right? So you got a stash of unused prescriptions. Keep that. You might need them at some point, right? <laughs> so we know what you believe by how you behave. You know what your unsaved friends believe by how they behave. The same is true for us. The Christian's faith, the Christian's belief that John talks about is not blind. It's not based on feelings. It's based on facts and evidence. Think about it. For three years, the nation of Israel has heard Jesus make claims that he came from the Father, from heaven, that he is the one and only God-man, that God is his Father, that he has divine nature, and that he is here to save the world from their sins, and they have seen evidence for three years. He has fulfilled multiple prophecies, over 300 of them in the Old Testament, and they knew the Old Testament, so they had data that says, this guy checks all the boxes. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born of the line of Judah, born of the descendants of David. I mean, you just run down the list. Furthermore, they've seen him perform miracles that only God could do for three years. There's an old proverb that says, there is none so blind as those who will not see. Not cannot see, will not see. The scribes and Pharisees didn't want to believe, and so they rejected and deliberately misinterpreted the evidence in front of them. So Jesus is now going to contrast those who don't belong to his flock with those who do belong to his flock. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Here's the principle. God sent Jesus the Messiah to earth in order to give eternal life to those who belong to him and believe in him. God sent Jesus the Messiah to earth in order to give eternal life to those who belong to him and believe in him. Jesus has just told the Pharisees, you don't believe because you don't belong to me. Now he discusses the nature of his relationship with sheep. He, remember last week he said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep have an intimate relationship with the shepherd. They have an intimate relationship with their own shepherd, not with any shepherd. They only hear the voice of their own shepherd, and they only respond to the voice of their own shepherd. God's sheep are in his flock. They belong to him. They hear him, they know him, and they follow him. Interesting question. How well do we know the voice of our shepherd? If God spoke to you, would you recognize his voice? Or would it be, who's that talking to me? You know, Samuel was spoken to multiple times by God when he was a child, and he didn't know yet the voice of the Lord. We need to spend enough time with the shepherd so we know his voice. And he speaks clearly in Scripture, and the Spirit of God illuminates his word and speaks to us through his word. 
sheep follow the shepherd, which means they go the same path the shepherd is going. They head for the same destination the shepherd is going, right? The shepherd knows his own sheep intimately and he communicates with him, and the sheep respond to the communication from the shepherd. Those who are not in God's flock don't respond to his voice, right? By your fruits you will know them. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. Bad trees don't produce good fruits. Jesus said, so my sheep know me and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. What's eternal life? In John 17, we'll get to in a few months, Lord willing, Jesus is praying to his Father and he says in verse 4, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is having a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way that is possible is through Jesus Christ, the one and only God-man who mediates between holy God and sinful humanity. And he mediates by paying for our sins that separate us from God. And when he pays for our sins, God's justice is satisfied and our relationship with God is reconciled. And we have a relationship with the Father based on the sacrifice of the Son. When we place our trust in God's payment for our sins, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. Eternal life is God living in us. It is not just forever and ever. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit came to live in your life and you inherited eternal life at that moment. Every single one of us that have a living relationship with the Father, through Jesus the Son, have eternal life now. Even though you're on a wicked, ugly, sinful planet, eternal life is God living in us. And it's a gift. Jesus said, I give you eternal life, right? It's not a reward for your performance. It's a gift because God's a good God. What happens with eternal life? They, meaning you and I, the sheep, will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In the Greek, the word never appears four times. It's a double negative. It says literally, they will not ever perish forever. No one never will snatch them out of my hand. You can't even take yourself out of God's hands. You can't. I know some of us have tried. Since you're not saved by your good works, you can't be lost by your bad ones. Right? People that believe that they can lose their salvation believe that their good works save them. That's not salvation by grace. That's salvation by works, which Scripture obviously says doesn't work. And the word snatch here, he's talking about wolves and robbers, etc., etc. Our eternal life, our eternal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, through the mediating work of Jesus Christ does not depend on how strongly we grab his hand. It depends on how strongly he grabs our hand. Way back in the day when you had children or maybe even grandchildren more recently, when you walk them through a crosswalk, the security of that child does not depend on them holding on to you. When you take a young child through a crosswalk, you don't depend on them holding you. You grab them by the hand, you grab them by the collar, you grab them by the belt, whatever it takes, you have a firm grasp on them. That's the grasp God the Father has on us. It is eternal. And you say, well, okay, but maybe somebody else can um, snatch me out of the Father's hand. Matter of fact, there's no power in all of creation that can come between you and Jesus and separate you from him. We talked about this last week. Romans 8.38 says, Nothing, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means you are permanently in his hand. By the way, he didn't promise you temporary life. He said, I give you what? Eternal life. Eternal life means what? Forever, right? My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This goes back to the doctrine of election, Ephesians says, before creation, God the Father chose by name each one who would be saved. Before creation. 
and gave that person as a gift to Jesus to save. Jesus saves that person by a sacrificial death on the cross before creation and keeps them securely saved by his divine power. Both God the Father and God the Son hold you into your hands. You've all heard the old phrase, you're in good hands with... Yeah, well, you're in really good hands. You're in eternally secure hands with God the Father and God the Son. I read a metaphor or a word picture I thought that was good. Noah and his family were secure inside the ark because God put them inside the ark and then God shut the door. Now, it's pretty stormy weather. I'm sure that Noah slipped and fell inside the ark on multiple occasions. A lot of animals in there, right? But we do know that Noah never fell outside the ark into the storm and was lost. We may slip and fall in this life. You cannot fall outside the security of your eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father chose you, the Son saved you, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and all three of them keep you. You can never be lost, stolen, or separated, not in this life or in the life to come. So when Satan bothers you with guilt about you screwed up, you think that's news to the Father? Jesus says, yeah, that's a screw up, paid for by my blood. That one belongs to me, I already paid for that sin as well. When Christ died on the cross, he paid for all sins, past present, and future, and he knows the ones you're going to do this afternoon. Already paid for. You are secure. We need to walk in that faith. Tell Satan to go pound sand or something like that, right? I and the Father are one. What he's saying is Jesus is not the same person as the Father. There is one God that exists in three persons called the Trinity. Wayne Grudem probably gives us the best definition. He says, quote, God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. And you go, no comprende. Of course. It's infinite wisdom. It's what God says He is. There is one God, not three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, and they are one in essence, identical in nature, identical in being, identical in will and in purpose. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he is saying, I have the exact same nature, the exact essence as God himself. I am God. We know that the Jews knew that he was claiming that because they picked up stones to try and kill him again. They attempted to murder him on the spot. No time for due process, not going to court. We're going to get this done now. When they picked up stones to throw at him, Jesus stops them and he says, Verse 23, 32. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we did not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. This is the Son of God who stilled the storm with a word. He taught with such divine authority in the temple that the officers of the Pharisees who came to capture him came back and said, Never has a man spoken like this man. Well, Jesus looked at him, asked him a question, and the stones went down. And he says, I did many excellent, noble, supernatural works that demonstrated the power of God. For which one of these miracles are you stoning me? They said, we're not stoning you for good works. You're stoning you for blasphemy because you are a mortal man who are claiming to be God. You're elevating yourself to holy God's level, and you are a mortal man like us. And blasphemy, of course, was punishable by death, Leviticus 24. The Jews said, you're only a man who is claiming to be God. Now, that diagnosis is precisely backwards. Jesus is a man, but he's more than just a man. He is God in human form. As truly God, he came to earth as God and took on sinless humanity. He is the one and only God-man, the one and only unique in history. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, with a physical body, the one and only. And we follow him at one point in time. In the future, heaven will be populated with the saints of God with resurrection bodies. He's the first fruits. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he, the Father, called them gods to whom the word of God came 
And the scripture cannot be broken. Underline that in your Bible. The scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Here's the principle. Jesus' supernatural miracles inescapably demonstrate that he is God in human flesh. Refusing to believe in him is both irrational and immoral. God, Jesus' supernatural miracles inescapably demonstrate that he is God in human flesh. Therefore, refusing to believe in him is both irrational and immoral. So they're going to stone him because he claimed to be God, and Jesus pulls out the Old Testament, Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a courtroom scene. God the Father is warning unjust human judges that one day they too will be judged. And God has delegated a part of his judicial authority to human agents. We have governments who are appointed by God to exercise authority over us. They are servants of the Lord, right, to impose righteous behavior and judgment on human beings. And God calls these human judges gods. Little g gods, right? Not big g, little g gods. And Jesus' arguments from the lesser to the greater. He says, look, if your scripture that you believe in, God the Father calls judges little g gods because their position as God's representative, how much more do I, the Son of God, whom the Father set apart and sent into the world, how much more do I deserve to be called the Son of God? You'll notice that Jesus took on the Pharisees virtually all the time with Scripture because that's something they believed. So he was going to make his point through quoting the Word of God. And almost as a side, Jesus says something that is profoundly true. He says, the Word of the Lord, the Word of God, is Scripture cannot be broken, which means cannot be changed, cannot be removed, cannot be nullified, cannot be altered. So you ask yourself, what did Jesus think about the Scriptures? Matthew 5, 17. Jesus is talking, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What you have in your lap or on your screen, the word of God, every word, every punctuation mark, every tense, the rabbis believed every space is there by divine design. Nothing in your scriptures that you are holding in your lap is there by accident or arbitrary. Everything is by divine design. It is an integrated message system that comes from outside the space-time continuum, right, to us. God has things to communicate with us. It's extraterrestrial, as they say. So the same God who spoke the worlds, the universe, into existence is the same God who spoke his word into existence. And he will accomplish everything written in that book without exception. They used to say yacht and tittle. That's the smallest punctuation mark. It's like an apostrophe. There is nothing in your scriptures that God will not accomplish. So when you read it, read it accordingly. Read it as if everything matters, because it does. It does. Jesus says, by the way, if you don't believe my words, then believe my works. My works reveal that the Father's in me. In other words, the only reason I can do the works I do is because I and the Father are one. And of course, their response was to pick up stones and try and kill him. This is the fifth time they've tried to kill him. Fifth time. Verse 40. I can't leave this one alone. I read an interesting commentary that says... On the eastern wall, all the construction was finished. I've read a number of commentaries that say, well, the temple was under construction, so there was lots of stones for them to pick up and stone him. I read a couple of other commentaries that said, no, that part of the Solomon's portico was already finished. 
which means the only way they can have stones to throw at them is if they brought them in their pockets, setting him up for the question so they could assassinate him. All right then. Now we call that premeditated murder without due process. Okay. Verse 40. What did Jesus do? And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Here's the principle. Like John the Baptist, God calls us to, quote, take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Like John the Baptist, God calls us to take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. This is crew, Old Campus Crusade for Christ. It's been their definition of successful evangelism for probably 40 to 50 years. So beginning in verse 40, Jesus withdraws from Jerusalem, and he goes to the east side of the Jordan River. That's where John began his ministry three years prior. Now, God's eternal plan was for Jesus to die for the sins of the world as a sacrificial lamb. But he was going to die on Passover, on Good Friday, when the lambs were sacrificed at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That was the exact time of Christ's death to the nanosecond. God has a plan, and it was a perfect plan, and this wasn't it. This was not the right time. We were three months away. So Jesus, if he had stayed in Jerusalem, would have set himself up for being assassinated before his time. So for the next three months or so, he stays away from the Jews, goes to the east side of the Jordan River, and devotes himself to his disciples and private ministry. So he leaves Jerusalem. He crosses about 18 to 20 miles to the east of the Jordan River, down the Jericho Road, for those of you who've been there, where John had been baptizing more than three years earlier. Now, John's been dead for a number of years now. And the town that Jesus went to was Bethany. There's a couple of Bethanies. Actually, there's more than one. Bethany means house of the poor, house of poverty. So it's utterly ironic that Jesus leaves Jerusalem, which is the religious center of the nation, where everyone should know who he is. I mean, they've been studying the Old Testament scriptures for decades and decades. If anybody should know who Jesus is, it's the scribes and Pharisees and their headquarters in Jerusalem. But he leaves the center of the nation's religious center because that's the center of unbelief. And he goes to the people of Bethany, outside religious Judaism, and they remember John. John ministered there three to four years earlier. And they say, you know, everything that John said about you is accurate. They remembered three years before Jesus had said, John had said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. He's going to come and he's going to call you to repentance, etc., etc. They remembered that. You know what that tells me? Everything you do for Jesus matters. I talked to someone a month or two ago who says, I remembered what you said 34 years ago. You said da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, oh, Lord, <laughs> how many other things have I said that people remember that maybe they should have dementia over? You know, I'm, it, it, it's sobering, but it does say what you do for Jesus matters. As a matter of fact, I am fully persuaded that part of the indictment, Jesus Christ, the judge of all the heaven and earth will have to those who reject him will be. I sent you so-and-so from manna, and they told me about you on Tuesday afternoon at 4.12 p.m., and you heard and you rejected. Or you heard and you came to faith. And now you can spend all eternity talking about how you came to faith, right? The people remembered what Jesus said, John had said about Jesus, about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it says many believed in him there. Many. So Christ goes... John the Baptist has planted the seeds, if you will, and Jesus is now reaping a harvest of faith and belief, and many came to faith. We don't know how many people God has appointed for salvation. 
We don't know how many people or who God has elected from eternity past and said, you're my sheep, you're going to come to faith. We don't know that. That's God's domain. But he has commanded us to tell people about Jesus, right? Like John the Baptist did. Share your faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. So John plants the seeds and the disciples and Jesus' rich or rich harvest. Good model for us. Do not ever decide that someone is going to heaven or not going to heaven based on God's election because you and I don't know that. Assume that Jesus wants every single person to be saved because he, he said he did. I came not to bring judgment, to bring salvation, right? Okay, let's review. Point one, those who belong to God will believe in Jesus. They'll believe in Jesus on God's timeline, not yours, right? That's why we pray, and we may pray until we are dead. Keep praying. Those who belong to God will believe in Jesus, his son. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus reveal they don't belong to God in the first place. Number two, God sent Jesus the Messiah to earth in order to give eternal life to those who belong to him and believe in him. We in this room who know him have experienced that. Number three, Jesus' supernatural miracles inescapably demonstrate that he is God in human flesh. Therefore, refusing to believe in him is both irrational and immoral. It's irrational because you refuse to believe the light of the evidence. It's immoral because it's evil. This is the Lamb of God who came for your salvation and you reject it. You side with Satan against Christ. And lastly, like John the Baptist, God calls us to take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God, which means pray, 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 pray before you open your mouth and then let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. Okay, a lot of meat, right? Wait till next week, Lord willing, John 11, read ahead. We'll look at the resurrection of Lazarus. Love you all now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.